Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, what is going on? Not so much, Steve. Good to see you. Good to be chatting with you again for another episode of the pod. Today, we are talking about movements in the world. I was going to say in the health and fitness world, but I think it's really getting more broad to hop on the latest fad, whether it is in diet or tracking device or breathing protocol. And um, we've been getting a lot of questions from listeners about does this stuff work? In what context might this stuff work? Why are so many people so into these various things? And you know, we'll we'll name some names, right? These are like your Fitbit Whoop type trackers that are really exploding in the market. And a lot of people ask us our takes on these. So uh, today we're going to discuss our take. All right. This is what I call our uh, our quick no BS rant mode, which is my favorite mode to get in. And if you appreciate that, guess what? Our quick plug, you appreciate that. Head over to our Patreon group. Join it, patreon.com slash the growth equation. You get early access to this. You get monthly book club. You get discussion groups. You get uh, you know all sorts of good stuff where we bring in other authors who give you the lowdown on the science, experience, et cetera, on what actually works because that's what we're all about here at the growth equation. What actually works, not the fads, not the BS, just you know, helping you perform better, live better, increase your happiness, well-being, all that good stuff. So join the club. And with that short plug for our Patreon, let's dive in. Okay. Yeah, so we're going to do this in in a way that is um, as structured as possible. So I've been thinking about this quite a bit over the last week. And The first thing is why would people want to hop on some sort of new diet or intermittent fasting routine or high intensity interval training or resonance breathing or you name it? And why would they want to track that really meticulously? And I think no one wants to do this because they feel like it's a waste of time or energy. So people either do this because they feel that it is effective and it works and or because they feel like by taking some kind of action or by tracking something, therefore they are doing something to promote their health, vitality, lifespan, and what have you. So it is an issue of both wanting to exert control over something that is very uncertain, which is health, performance, life. And it is also a hope for some sort of benefit from exerting control. So I think those are the two primary psychological drivers as to why people really do anything. And what we're trying to tease out is how much of these things are really just about exerting control and don't carry any benefit and perhaps carry harm versus do they work? And then the last layer, as long-term listeners of this show know, is it's not just do they work, it's do they work for whom, in what context, until when. So that's what we're going to try to unpack today. 
We're not going to sit here and bash various tracking companies. Um, that is not our jam. What we are going to try to do is tell you what might be valuable when and what's not valuable. Yep. I mean, you summed it up really well. Do they work? How much control? Like, do we have this need for control, this need to get better? Um, and then the context behind things. And uh, the other thing that I should point out before we jump into, you know, the details on this is it's not just, you know, you mentioned tracking. It's not just tracking, but it's also various ideas or various concepts that um, almost take on, I'm going to say, a religious like fervor on oh we need to do this like this is the one way this is this this is solution this is the magic thing this is the most important thing and i think people fall for that too because it's easier to like go all in get blinded and believe something is the only thing so that it like gets you energized and like allows you to keep going um but that only works in the short term especially if the results aren't there Right. So what we always preach is the basics. They're simple, not easy. So what we can confidently say is the only evidence-based pursuits that help with performance, health, and lifespan, where those are the actual outcomes of the studies. So this is not about tracking a change in some biomarker or hormone. This is about tracking, do you live longer, do you feel better, and do you perform better? All that we know that meets that bar is regular physical activity, immersing yourself in some sort of community where you feel a sense of belonging, having mastery or tangible progress in your life, having autonomy or some feeling of control over how you spend your time and energy, sleeping between seven and nine hours most nights, avoiding processed foods, having a lean body fat percentage that is considered healthy, which generally speaking, if you move your body regularly and avoid processed foods, you tend to settle there, and going outside in nature. There's very little else that meets the bar of meticulously studied where the outcome, again, this is so important, the outcome is not an increase in the mTOR pathway or a decrease in cortisol. The outcome is how do you actually feel after doing it? Did you mention community in there? I did. And I think it's really, yeah. And, and community is an important one because community incorporates um, lots of religious and spiritual pursuits where the evidence does show that they have quite a strong effect on, on lifespan. But since, and I talked about this a lot in the practice of groundedness, but that effect is consistent across Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Taoism. So it's not the specific prayer that's improving someone's life. It's the felt sense of belonging. Um, to a tradition and ideally in, in, in pre certainly before COVID to like a group of, of similar people with the same beliefs. So that's what we know works. Now, the biggest complaint that I get, Steve, when I tell people that is, well, look at you, like you're fit, you know, no wonder you've never had to diet. You just have good genetics. Like how dare you tell me it's as simple as just moving my body and, and avoiding processed foods. What do you say to that person? 
that then wants to try intermittent fasting? It's a good question. I mean, first off, I empathize with that in the sense that, yes, like genetics plays a role and like all that good stuff. Um, And I was blessed with genetics that related me to be a good runner and all that good stuff. Um, But if you look at the research, right, and you look at the data on successful diets, especially, um, there isn't any that shows that one specific diet works better than anything else over the long haul, right? When it comes to diet, what you can consistently, you know, adopt over a very long time works best, right? And I I think that that there is the key instead of sitting there searching for the perfect thing. You know, it's almost related to some of the work we've we've done in terms of uh, pursuing passion to degree. Because if you go in with a mindset that is like, oh, I've got to find like, you know, that one true love, that one true thing that I'm passionate about, you're going to fail. It's 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 going to backfire. Like the research is very clear. Right. If you take that same approach to diet, like, oh, there is one answer. This is the magic being here. Like, I've got to find this. You're just setting yourself up for failure, in my my um, my opinion. Right. And we do know, to be clear, like intermittent fasting, there was a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that so many of like the, um, I don't want to say bro science, but like podcasts that fashion themselves is really innovative, they all talked about. And what that study showed is that intermittent fasting can increase this pathway called mTOR in the body, which Steve would know better than me from his long ago background in exercise science, has to do with like ability to generate good metabolism and is healthy. And a bunch of other things also can help with mTOR, such as like sleeping and exercising. Um, So it's important when people talk about these things to differentiate between you can observe something under a microscope versus it actually has an effect in the real world. Yeah, and that's such an important thing. So let's let's spend just a second here, you know, um, diving into this. So you mentioned mTOR. So without going too deep into the weeds here, mTOR was really big when I was in grad school because there were all these studies that started to show like mTOR pathway, like activation, like huge and important for strength gains. So everyone's like, oh, how do we how do we optimize like mTOR pathway? But this is the advice I got from um, my my actually grad school advisor at the time who said, essentially, we were sitting down having this conversation and he said, Steve, there are going to be dozens upon dozens of pathways that we discover and right now, mTOR is the hot one. And in the endurance world, it was this thing called PGC1-alpha. Ooh, said, that's got such a great name, PGC1-alpha. How do I supplement and sell that? <laughs> you know, maybe you should jump on that bandwagon because no one, no one's talking about that one. Now, so there's our, there's our marketing play. But his point was pretty simple. It's like, I'm not discounting the pathway. But he said the important thing to do is to not get lost in the details. And we need to connect the broad, the high level functional change, and then look all the way down to the pathway and come back up. Okay. And his point 
was if you go from func if you start with the functional change, you're gonna realize that even these pathways that we think are super important, like they play one small little role. But if we overemphasize them, we're going to think they are the one thing, the true thing. And the reality is we have so much work to discover on how all these things, you know, interconnect. The same thing, again, happened in grad school, not to go down the rabbit hole. But um, when I was in grad school, uh, the hormones for satiety, fullness, like ghrelin, was like reaching popularity too because they were first kind of discovered and all this stuff and people were like oh this is the key to uh you know weight loss and like we're gonna manipulate that fast forward a decade and a half later it's not the case right um and that's because there are so many by what what we call bioplausible narratives that we can come up with where we look at a pathway and then we create this theory or this rationale out of this. And this happens all the time in the diet world, all the time. It happens all the time in the exercise world, right? Go to someone who believes full fulfilling, like, or the, the best thing to do is high intensity interval training. And it's the only thing we can do. They're going to give you all this data on this pathway activation, which tells you like, oh, look, it activates this pathway, which helps cardiovascularly as well. So it's the only thing. But if we zoom out and we look at the broad functional and performance things, you realize, oh, if we do only high intensity interval training, we're like the track athletes from the 1920s who only did that. And guess what? We've got 100 years of innovation to tell us that like, they weren't doing the best thing. <laughs> right. And then another, it's funny, another area where like there's a lot of reductionism that we briefly touched on is within breathing and breath. So nose breathing is a trend and resonance breathing, which is in basically in the simplest terms, breathing in a certain timing pattern. And people might be saying, well, what's the reductionism there? The reductionism there comes out of Eastern contemplation and meditation practices. And there is evidence that shows that many individuals that adhere to a long-term meditation practice tend to have reduced levels of stress and more calm and ease in their lives. Now, what's fascinating is when you study the people doing this meditation, the breath itself is not really a part of what drives those benefits. What drives those benefits is learning to sit and be with all the thoughts, feelings, and urges that come up without reacting to them. It is a saying in the Vipassana meditation tradition, which is in the West mostly associated with mindfulness, that you want to let the breath breathe itself. So to focus on controlling the breath, is actually the opposite of what these teachings tell you. But it's a lot harder to accept that the breath should breathe itself and to let go, which is the whole point of meditation, than it is to try to control the breath. So I always find that a, a, a particularly ironic that these breathing practices in books about breathing and all this hoopla about breathing flows from these traditions that the whole point of the tradition is to let go. And all these things are actually saying you need to grab on and control your breath. 
Isn't that wild? And there's like indisputable. That's indisputable. Like you look at any good Vipassana, you go back to the Pali Canon, like which is the Buddha's words. And the whole point is you let the breath breathe itself. There was no like, you better breathe four seconds in, four seconds out, or, you know, you better do exercise and then breathe through your nose. And, 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 and it's not just ancient, the, 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 the finest, most successful meditation teachers in the West, they often talk about how, yes, you know, breathing through your nose is the typical way to meditate. But if that makes you really uncomfortable and you can't sit with that discomfort, you can focus on sounds, not the breath. So there's nothing magical about that thing. And then I think Steve can speak better to it than me. But if I remember right, in the fitness world, right around the same time, like breathing out of your nose was taking off, there was the study that showed that the best way to oxygenate for peak performance when you're tired is to put your hands on your knees and take huge breaths through your mouth. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to tackle, I'm, I'm glad that you tackled the uh, meditation kind of uh, ancient practice side. I'm going to go down the exercise route and I'm glad you set me up with that. So we'll start there. There's so many myths around breathing in fitness so many when it is such a simple ingrained thing okay you mentioned the hands on your knees after you're, you're uh, exercising for you know um improving your uh your recovery well think back to maybe middle school high school when you're out at pe class you're doing something hard maybe you run a mile physical fitness test you finish up what do you naturally do you kind of collapse a little bit. Hands go on your knees. Maybe you even go all the way to the ground. Whenever I raced a mile, I fell to the ground afterwards, just laid on the ground. Okay. And then inevitably what happened is probably you had some PE coach, some soccer coach, some track coach who yelled at you and said, like, there's no air down there. Like hands above your head, like put them on, you know, stand up straight. That's how you get your oxygen in. That's completely wrong. Okay, completely wrong. Now, why why is that? Well, let's think about it. Your hands go on your knees, okay? You bring your heart down lower so it doesn't have to pump against gravity, right? And you put yourself in a better like rib cage and all that in a better position to um, get in air when you're doing essentially deep breaths, trying to get in air and push out CO2, okay? If you collapse or find yourself on the ground, why are you on the ground? Simple. You really don't have to work against gravity, right? You're on a level playing field. Great. So myths about breathing. Well, what about this nasal breathing thing? Okay. Recently, again, but it's been going on forever, forever in the exercise world, there's been this push of like, oh, breathe through your nose. Helps with oxygenation, all that stuff. Well, let's, let's put, you know, let's, um, let's kill that myth real quick. First off, when you're running or when you're exercising moderately hard, we'll say, um, breathing in and out air is not the limiting factor. Okay. It's not, it really doesn't matter how you breathe in or out when you're doing something easy to moderate. As we gain or increase our effort level however you can get in air and more importantly actually is out co2 
is the like, however you can do it is how you need to do it. And if you look at the studies, if you look at how people function, when you're going for a walk, when you're going for a jog, and it's very easy, yeah, you can get away with nasal breathing, but there's no benefit to it. It doesn't, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't do any of these magic things that people say. But once you get past a certain threshold where you actually have to, like your breathing rate goes up, you need to get in air and out CO2 in whatever way possible. And if you are doing it only through your nasal cavity, you are, again, at higher intensity, you are limiting your performance. You are making yourself worse. So whenever someone says, hey, I need to breathe through my nose and this is what I'm training, I tell them, stop. It's not worth it. You know? Breathe through whatever orifice you can get in air and get out CO2. Stop overthinking it. It doesn't do all these things, right? And there's a myriad of things, and I've heard them all. And yeah, sure, maybe you get slight air filtration through your your nasal cavity better. But guess what? When you're exercising and air is going in and out so quickly, like it doesn't really matter. And I've even heard stuff, again, on like, well, it changes... Because we breathe through our mouth, like it changes our our airways and our teeth and all that stuff. Well, guess what, man? My dad was an orthodontist for like 45 years. And most of that really matters. But everything, that's the thing. Everything changes your teeth. Like if you eat food, it changes your teeth. So I think like this comes back to what's the so what? And if the so what is it changes your teeth, well... In what direction? And to what extent does it change your teeth? You know, whereas like there are breathing things that truly do have an impact that are really bad. If you have sleep apnea, you're going to want to focus on your breathing with a doctor for sure. If you are otherwise healthy and like breathing through your mouth is more comfortable when you're exercising, great, breathe through your mouth. If you're in a walk and you want to try to breathe through your nose because you want to try to like get comfortable with being uncomfortable and that's how you choose to do it, great. Breathe through your nose. It's like cold plunges and showers. If you want to take a cold plunge because like that's something that is going to like make you feel really alive, great. Take a cold plunge. But don't say that it is or don't don't tell yourself the story that you're going to live longer or be better because of it. Um so I think that that's like that that's where all of these fads tend to fall um, pretty much across the board. And then I think the other issue is with this tracking of everything, which is really blown up. And the first thing I'll say uh, is as follows. Any tool that claims to track your exertion, your recovery, your readiness for tasks that is based on an algorithm with a main input, whether that is heart rate or respiration rate or sweat rate, if that main input is not being accurately tracked, then everything that comes out of that algorithm, even if that algorithm is perfect, is garbage. To date, studies of wrist-worn trackers show that they do not accurately measure heart rate compared to a chest tracker and or the gold standard, which is an echocardiogram. So first thing is first, 
Maybe the technologies have improved. I'm not up on the latest research, but as of a few years ago, when I wrote about this topic, it was quite clear, and we can do a fact check and look at this research right now in real time. It was quite clear that the wrist straps were not accurately getting your heart rate, particularly during physical activity, which is the most important time to capture a heart rate for something that's going to help you gauge your performance and recovery. So that's the first thing. The second thing, let's pretend that there is a world where the technology's gotten great in a wrist strap or something, even a ring, does a very accurate job of getting your heart rate, the thing that it purports to get. Well, heart rate is affected by myriad factors. So the simplest example I have is heat tends to elevate people's heart rate. So this device might start saying that back off, you're severely overtrained because it was unseasonably warm where you live. And that is like the simplest thing that one ought to be able to control for. Now we get into caffeine intake or um, just in a various training cycle when you're overreaching and you actually want to have some fatigue and the individual's training age. So it is a lot safer for someone that's been training a lot longer to push themselves into overreaching than to someone that's just started training. So the point is you start with this simple thing that is often not accurate. Even if you can get that thing to be accurate, there are a million factors that go into that thing. So I'm stopping short of saying that all of these trackers are bullshit because I don't know them well enough to say that, but I'm coming pretty close to saying that. And this is just my opinion. <laughs> I love I love when you go on these rants on tracking. Um, the other thing I would say besides the accuracy that is really important here is, is it actually improving your bottom line performance at whatever that is from sleep to athletic performance let's take sleep real quick there's been research that shows like wearing trackers act like tracking sleep continuously can create anxiety around not getting the sleep you thought you were getting and then being anxious knowing that hey i'm having this tracked and leading to worse sleep there's been some research around that. If we look at activity or running performance, I'll use my own example. Okay. If the thing, the tracker that tells you whether you're ready to go or over fatigued or overtraining, if that is becoming the dictating thing and taking away your ability to listen to your body and understand the ebbs and flows of like what you're feeling from a fatigue standpoint then it could actually take away from performance because I'm going to, I'm going to put my athletic coach hat on, not my executive coach hat on from an athletic standpoint, especially in running. One of the number one things you teach as a coach is how to listen to your body and how to get that awareness because that is the best feedback you have, right? And what often happens nowadays is we have to teach that even more so because everyone's got this wrist-worn watch that tells them heart rate, HRV. Um, it tells them their exact pace at the right time, whether they're overtraining. And they start listening to the thing and lose the ability to listen to your body. 
which is incredibly important. And the the one final thing I'll say on this is in ask any any coach of runners and they'll laugh because this is what happens. Um they'll start trusting the thing instead of themselves and have anxiety over it, right? So I've worked out with college age athletes a lot and what inevitably happens is you'll be like, "Okay, we want this workout at x, you know, x effort or x pace." And they'll look down at their watch and they'll be like, oh my gosh, my watch tells me I'm running too fast. I should slow down. Meanwhile, you're like, hold up, we're running through woods. Like your watch isn't accurate. Listen to your body. Do you feel okay? Yeah, I feel good. Well, do you feel like you're in the effort zone? Yeah, I could do this for the 30 minutes of the workout. Well, great. Then let's do that. Let's not slow down because like this thing on your watch is telling you to like ride it, see what happens. So sorry, I'm pausing here because I'm going and doing a very quick review of the recent research and studies published in 2017 and 2018 all conclude that these devices are best for measuring steps, are less accurate for measuring heart rate at rest and are inaccurate at measuring heart rate during activity. Almost all fitness trackers can count your steps and distance traveled. It's increasingly common to measure heart rate. On the latter, they are not as effective. So, again, here we go. Not a full-fledged rant, but a little one. The more simplistic the measure, the more accurate and valuable the device. No one is railing against using a stopwatch for a beginner runner. It measures time. It is very accurate. Heart rate on a chest monitor. Maybe it's one step up from time in terms of complexity and um, honesty or accuracy of the measurement. A wrist tracker for heart rate, more complex. A wrist tracker for heart rate that's now going to tell you your readiness to train, more complex. And the higher up the complexity scale you go, the more room there is for error and the more factors that come in to the actual thing. Now, something that I called Steve and asked him last night when we were doing our very minimal prep for this podcast was, well, I'm going to play devil's advocate. And much like someone that struggles from um, overusing alcohol, they develop a tolerance where they don't think that they're drunk, even though they're drunk. And you could probably say the same thing about someone's behaviors in other realms of life, specifically sleep. So a device in theory could be helpful for someone that is so sleep deprived, they've been sleeping four to five hours a night for the last 10 years, and they just assume that that's what normal feels like. And maybe if they see a device telling them that they're sleeping only four to five hours, but they already know that. See, that's the problem. I'm I'm correcting myself as I go because that device is actually going to show nothing wrong because like their body has adapted to sleeping four to five hours. So the other part of this, and this is, I'm glad you brought this up. If you look at, again, tons of research on this, knowledge is seldom the issue and problem, right? We often know that we're not eating well, that we're not getting the activity and movement that we need that we're not sleeping as much as experts or we maybe should be feeling. Knowledge is seldom the problem. The problem is like the behavior change that comes with it. And I think this is where you have to ask when you say, 
is wearing a tracker, is tracking things going to help or hinder? And sometimes, like, it helps. For instance, you know, sticking with the habit of exercise, keeping a log can help, right? Over time, this is why runners keep a training log. But it, it, it can also, and that works really well for beginners and high school kids who are getting into it. But over my career, as I was better, as I got better and better, I hated keeping a log. Why? Because I knew I was going to do the work. Like, that wasn't the question. But I ha- I hated just, like, going back and being like, okay, I have to enter this. And then seeing how many miles I had. And then being like, oh, I should run an extra five miles to get to that 100-mile, you know, a week thing. When that wasn't on the schedule. Or that wasn't what I was probably best to do. So, like, these trackers, whether we're looking at sleep or HRV or any of this stuff. Like, it can it can help in certain situations. But it's the knowledge is is seldom the the change right. the changing in, factor. In, you know, in the issue in the issue is, and I feel so strongly about this that it acts as a replacement for the actual thing. If you've made it this far, hopefully this is the the one valuable thing that I'll give you today because I feel like I've been ranting. Steve's been doing a better job. Thank you, Steve. If you put on the device or you tell yourself, I'm using this device and therefore I am taking a behavior to be healthy and I'm exerting control, all you are doing is putting something on your wrist or your chest or your finger or your ear or wherever else they ask you to put it. You are not actually sleeping more. You are not actually moving your body more. You are taking something that is simple but not easy, which is behavior or lifestyle change, and making it more complex to delude yourself from what you actually need to do. And I am taking an extreme view here. Are there exceptions? Of course. But in general, I think that is so much the problem here. Or you get so freaking good and you get so freaking into it that tracking becomes a religion. And it's no longer about health. It's no longer about performance. It's about the ideology. And here you get eating disorders, You get people whose relationships fall apart because they can only eat for 30 minutes a day and people don't want to date someone that can only eat for 30 minutes a day. You get um, all sorts of these like secondary effects where much like someone that is an evangelical devout Christian or an Orthodox Jew, you get someone that becomes an Orthodox tracker where their community becomes other trackers and their whole life is dictated by eating during certain windows breathing in certain ways, only eating certain foods, uploading everything to a computer, and pretty soon you have no time or energy for anything else. So like, it's almost like the tracking lifestyle or the tracking religion. And again, I realize I'm talking in extremes. Most people that wear a Whoop or a Quora ring or a Fitbit, they're just regular people that wear it and they go about their lives. But there are like these extreme communities that represent themselves publicly as like the healthiest people in the world. And from the outside looking in, unless they show me that they're living longer with higher function, they simply look like adherence to a very fervent religion to me. Spot on. Couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, I think, again, none of this stuff is evil or bad or what have you. If you want to breathe out of your nose, you know, for self-control, like experiment with it, whatever. We don't care. Um, and, and let me say one other thing, because I've like been ranting hard. I, when I am writing, 
like a book or a big project, I probably would fall into the category of intermittent fasting, but I would never think of it as such. So when I'm in the middle of a book project, I wake up and I just write until I can't write anymore. And if I eat a big breakfast or really any breakfast, I don't write as well. I feel kind of fatigued. I get distracted. But I don't consider that like intermittent fasting that's going to make me live longer. That's just like how I get most alert to write. And now that I think about it, the funny thing is it wouldn't count as intermittent fasting because every morning I snack on granola and cereal while I make my coffee that has milk in it. So like that's the point. Like the thing is I don't eat a lot of food because for my body type in my psyche, eating a lot of food in the morning before writing makes me tired. But that's it. And that's just me at this phase of my life. And I am snacking on granola and the granola is probably pretty high caloric. So who knows? Maybe I am eating. Maybe what I mean to say is like, I can't eat dense food. But the point is I'm not selling it is like, oh, by fasting, this hormone that affects creativity and energy gets upregulated in the hormone. that So therefore, like, because I fast, I write well. No, it's like that's a routine that I've fallen into and it doesn't do any harm in my life. You know, back when I was running a ton in oh, college, um, you know, we pioneered uh, fasted training, right? Because you'd wake up, I remember in college, we'd, we'd meet there every morning, we'd have afternoon practice, but the, the rest of us who had, were running a ton, there was a handful of us, had to get in a morning run in order to get our mileage in. So we would have nine miles in the morning and we'd meet at seven o'clock at the corner of the street. And we're college kids. We're trying to get our sleep. We're running hundred miles a week. We're exhausted, all that stuff. So we would push our sleep into the last possible minute minute. So I would literally roll out of bed at like 645, 650, like down some water, throw on my running clothes, like, you know, take a pee and then like, jog down the street to meet everyone at seven o'clock at the corner. And that didn't include food. Why didn't it include food? Because I didn't want to wake up the 45 minutes beforehand to like snack on something, give myself time, a little bit of time to digest it and, and then get going. So we'd run fat, quote unquote, fasted for nine miles every morning. And then we'd come back and eat breakfast. But the the point is, it's the same with your, your example. Like, was I pioneering this stuff? Was I doing it to enhance stuff? No, we were doing it because like that is how we could, you know, get our nine miles in. And the other part I would say is how people would say like, oh, how could you run nine miles without, you know, food and stuff like that? It's because you had a bunch of college kids who were running about 100 miles a week and we were adapted to be able to do like lots of exercise and crazy things. And nine miles wasn't that hard. It was normal. It was like going for a walk. Yeah. And the last thing that, or it's probably not the last thing, but the next thing that I'll say here is, are there people for which certain um, ways of living in the health and fitness realm make sense? And the answer is yes. If you have type two diabetes, if you have high cholesterol, if you have um, a family history of Parkinson's, Like these are medical conditions that under the guidance of a medical provider that specializes in these conditions, you might change how you eat and how you move your body, 
perhaps how you sleep. I don't know. I'm not a physician or a nurse, but for the general population, which is where so many of these fads hit, I, I just think like it, it's very hard pressed for me to make sense of them other than it gives you the illusion of thinking that you're doing something to get better instead of actually accepting that performance and health and longevity is extremely uncertain. And all you can do is nail the basics and the basics are simple, but not easy, but you have to do your best to nail those basics anyways. That's the first thing I'll say. And then the second thing I'll say is at a population level, you could look around and say, well, yeah, like clearly like what we're doing is not working. You've got obesity and overweight and over two thirds of the population. You've got all, all these, all these issues, but the solution isn't like a specific diet. The solution is like more stringent tobacco regulation, better gun control, more access to public health, more walkable cities. So it's not to say that there aren't real problems in that in the Western world, like health span in particular, which is not just lifespan, but how functional you are, it could be a lot better. But it's not going to be a certain diet or eating in certain windows or tracking your circadian cycle that is going to improve health. What's going to improve health is these very fundamental public health measures that, again, at a societal level, much like at an individual level, are simple but not easy. Like the best thing that we could do for health is not to give two shits about our circadian rhythm. It's to make it harder for people to start smoking cigarettes. Like the end, that would have a bigger effect on public health than just about anything. In an individual level, the best thing that we could do for our health, if we are getting a checkup once a year, which in of itself is debatable. There's evidence that shows if you're asymptomatic and under a certain age, you don't even need to do that. But if you're seeing your doctor and you're listening to them, maybe you get blood work every few years and it comes back normal. I firmly believe the best thing that you could do for your health is to stop stressing about your health. And this comes from someone with a history of OCD and anxiety that at times has been related to health. Stressing about your health is not fun. Like we're all going to probably die eventually. So trying to control it more than those fundamental basics, I just don't think it makes sense. Again, unless you've got diabetes where there's a specific diet with specific care management that might help you, or you have high cholesterol and you're eating 10 eggs a day and your doctor says go down to five. But otherwise, like, no, who on earth would gift themselves or a family member for Christmas a device that's just going to make them anxious with potentially garbage in, garbage out algorithms? Oh, man, we're recording on a weekend, not on a Wednesday. I feel like I'm all over the freaking place. So I hope that I don't get us, like, canceled. <laughs> Brad getting us canceled in the health world. Um no, I'm I'm in agreement. I mean, I think we're not anti any of this stuff necessarily. We're just asking for, you know, like we always do, some nuance here and step back and be like, you know, to quote our our good friend uh and um renowned strength coach Dan John, like keep the main thing the main thing, which this what is the main thing is like move like, yes, are there specific types of movement activity that, like, might be slightly better or worse? Sure. Um, but in general, if you move, like, sometimes long, sometimes hard, sometimes strong, 
you're going to be good. You know, don't right. get caught in the details of like, oh, is this this workout with 15 second intervals better than this one with 60 second intervals? It doesn't freaking matter. Right. Right. And we, we often joke that like, you know, we should make a YouTube and by no means do Steve and I have it all figured out. But, you know, we're we're fairly healthy middle aged dudes. We should make a YouTube video of like the growth equation performance hacks. And it's like us waking up after six to eight hours of sleep, kind of tired and struggling to get going. Then it's like me calling Steve and being like, let's go on a walk with our dogs. So we take a walk with our dogs. Then I eat two bags of Sun Chips for lunch. And I'm like, I probably should have had some more protein and fruit, but I'll try better next time. And then like we go work at a coffee shop and then maybe we, Steve goes for a run and I lift some weights and then like, oh, mental, emotional health. Like instead of going into the crystal store, you call your therapist. Like this stuff is so simple and it just, you can tell I'm getting worked up. Like it pains me. And it's since the beginning of time, like the fountain of youth was a place that people would venture because they thought that if they drink the water from it or touch the water from it, they would live forever. They wouldn't age. And people stressed out and they went on this long journey to go there. And all those people ended up dying just like everybody else. And I feel like now the fountain of youth is like high tech devices, diets, breathing strategies, all this shit. And it's like, no, you know what the fountain of youth is? It's like the mRNA vaccine that was just created. It is sewage, sanitation. Like the next jump will probably, what's that, Steve? I said air quality. Yeah, air quality, bingo. Like the fountain of youth is like, let's talk about climate change, not the shit that we wear on our wrist and our fingers. So that's where I'm at. I know y'all might not love this and it might not be what you want to hear. It might not even be what you need to hear. But I think that... um yeah, we got to keep the main thing the main thing in our own lives and societally. That That is it. So if you walk away with anything on Brad and my, me ranting, keep the main thing the main thing. Like, have some movement. Make sure you're part of a community. Like, and that community is positive and not dragging you towards, you know, this kind of oneness, deep like uh, religiosity towards something that doesn't deserve that attention. Um, Autonomy, mastery, sleep, you know, avoid processed foods. Keep it simple. Yeah. And if you find yourself like really stressing about all of these things, you almost have to treat it like an anxiety disorder. I think where the anxiety is like wanting control over mortality and morbidity and we have to come to terms if there's only so much that we can do and the things that we can do are super effective. But once you're doing all those things, well, then you should be satisfied and enjoy life and not need to improve. So if you're smoking or you're a smoker, yeah, get help quitting. That's super important. If you don't move your body regularly, yeah, get help. Pick up some kind of program that feels sustainable. If you truly just eat sun chips, yeah, you should focus on your diet. But if you are already moving pretty regularly, eating pretty well, sleeping good enough, you know, you know what'll fuck up my tracker store is having a kid. So like, that's the last thing that you need. Having a kid is stressful enough. I don't need something telling me that my variability of my heart is like off because I was up all night with my kid. I know it was. I was up all night with my kid. 
So, like, come on, guys. So let's really try to stick to fundamentals, not fluff. That's what we do here. Um, and that's our whole product. Like, our whole product is us holding your hand at times along this path because it's hard. And the best thing that you can have is community, coaching, and support. But we're not selling any magic program. Our books, y'all, you might learn some new stuff, but it's just the basics in a way that helps you practice them because that's what works. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.